Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Airwave, a student-led anesthesia podcast for medical students. My name is James, and I am a third-year medical student at McMaster University. Joining me today is my co-host, Emily Aw. Thanks, James. I'm really excited to be kicking off this new school year with a new team at Airwave. Hi, everyone. My name's Emily, and today we're going to be talking about volatile agents in anesthesia, key physiological concepts, and apply what we've discussed to a clinical case. It's going to be a very gassy episode, no pun intended. We hope that you take it all in, but hang tight so you don't fall asleep. You're really laying it thick with the anesthesia puns, aren't you? Well, what can I say? It's an important part of the job. More importantly, today we're going to walk you guys through the following. First, we're going to do a quick review of volatile agents that are commonly used. Second, the three pillars of volatile anesthetics, which are A, blood gas partition coefficient, B, MAC or minimum alveolar concentration, C, lipid solubility, and lastly, we're going to apply all that knowledge discussed to our clinical case scenario. First used in the 19th century for general anesthesia during surgery, ether was the first of its kind in the arsenal of inhalational agents. Due to the efficacy and safety issues, however, ether was rapidly replaced by other agents that we commonly see in the operating rooms today. If you haven't checked out our Season 2, Episode 6 on maintenance, we strongly recommend that you check that out first as a quick refresher on the different agents. James, I didn't know you were so big on history. I think this is a great episode to quickly talk about the story of Dr. Jon Snow. You mean the Dr. Jon Snow, the epidemiologist who was famously known for discovering that cholera was transmitted from contaminated well water? That's right! He was actually an anesthesiologist as well one of the most sought after at the time. He actually helped Queen Victoria during her delivery back in 1853, and he provided her anesthesia with chloroform, which was another inhalational agent that was being used along with ether around that time. Wow, those are some really interesting historical facts. Now, let's dive right into our case. Your 80-year-old male patient is coming in today for a left total hip replacement. He has stated that he would like to be under general anesthesia for the operation. His past medical history is significant for asthma as a child, but has not had an attack for the last 60 years. The patient has been successfully induced under general anesthetic. Your preceptor points to the anesthetic machine and asks you to start the volatile anesthetics, and you wonder how much of each gas would be appropriate to use. So now I really like this case because it requires us to carefully examine and weigh the pros and cons of the different volatile agents and apply them in a clinically meaningful context. But first, let's quickly recap some of these volatile agents. In Canada, sevoflurane and desflurane are the most commonly used volatile gases used in the operating room. In particular, sevoflurane is preferred due to the environmental concerns. Desflurane is a very potent greenhouse gas. Their mechanism of action largely remain elusive, although it is hypothesized that they cause central nervous system depression through their GABAergic effects and acting on ion channels. The depth of sedation is controlled by adjusting the concentration of anesthetic agent delivered to the patient, which ultimately results in greater or lesser amounts of the anesthetic reaching the brain. These agents are extremely effective in maintaining anesthesia in patients undergoing surgery. In particular, they're advantageous in that they are inexpensive easily administered, rapidly titratable with minimal metabolism, and have a good safety profile. Absolutely. Volatile agents are excellent choices in maintaining general anesthesia. However, they do come with their cons. 
Because the use of volatile agents can potentially act as a trigger for malignant hyperthermia, it's extremely important to catch a past medical history or family history of this anesthesia emergency. Higher concentrations of desflurane can also be irritating to the airway and therefore should be used in caution, with caution in patients with reactive airway disease. In contrast, sevoflurane can act as a bronchodilator and is safer to use in patients with asthma, for example. Lastly, patients are more, also more susceptible to postoperative nausea and vomiting using volatile agents, so that should be treated accordingly. For more info on this, take a peek at our Season 2 Episode 5 on Emergence. Also, desflurane in particular is a potent greenhouse gas and has a large carbon footprint. Use with caution. To conceptualize how volatile anesthetic agents work and to put into context their relevant properties, it's important to understand how exactly volatile anesthetics get delivered to the patient. I'd like you to close your eyes and imagine a molecule of anesthetic gas as it gets delivered to the patient. With every breath delivered by the ventilator, Fresh gas enters the ventilatory circuit and travels to the patients through the airways and then to the alveoli. In the alveoli, the volatile anesthetic is taken up by the pulmonary circulation at the alveolar capillary membrane. Okay, and for all anesthetics, is the uptake the same? That's an excellent question, and the answer is no. To explain that, you need to look at the first important property of volatile anesthetics, which is the blood gas coefficient or how much of the gas will be soluble in blood relative to air. And this is an important property because it affects how fast a volatile agent works. To those of you who are listening, pause and quiz yourself for a moment. If a particular gas had a high solubility in blood, would you need large or small amounts of that gas before equilibrium with the gas phase is reached? And this is counterintuitive and it might take a few listens to wrap your head around it. But one would think that the more soluble a gas is in blood, the faster the onset. But it's actually the opposite. Think about gases that are more soluble like a scuba diver, and less soluble gases are like a surfer in the bloodstream. The surfer gets to the destination faster, and the scuba diver, which is more soluble, takes longer to get there. Yeah, super confusing. But that's because volatile anesthetics exist in two forms in the blood, both bound to plasma molecules and in free kinetic form where it exerts a partial pressure. Greater solubility means that the gas molecules are more tightly bound to the liquid molecules, resulting in less free active gas molecules available to exert a partial pressure. And so the more soluble a volatile anesthetic is in blood, the more it gets taken up by the blood plasma proteins and the slower the rise of the alveolar partial pressure of that volatile anesthetic. And ultimately, it is the partial pressure of the volatile in the alveoli that dictates the partial pressure of the volatile in the blood and ultimately in the brain. Hmm, so if we think about the blood as a reservoir for the gas, then the high solubility of the gas would imply that the blood can take up a lot of gas before it becomes saturated and equilibrates with the gas phase, right? You're absolutely right. A gas with a high blood gas partition coefficient would require larger amounts of anesthetic to be dissolved in the gas before a steady state is reached between the partial pressures of the gas in the alveoli and blood. I see. And this would have clinical significance because the partial pressure of the gas in the blood is a proxy for the partial pressure of the gas in the brain, which would help the anesthesiologist control the depth of anesthesia and anticipate the rate of patient recovery during emergence. Most importantly, 
The blood gas partition coefficients of the volatile agents becomes an important consideration during inhalation, induction in pediatric cases or difficult airways, since it has implications on how quickly the patient can be induced. The coefficient compares the concentration of the anesthetic in the blood versus the alveoli. The lower the coefficient, the less soluble the gas is in blood. The blood gas partition coefficient of desflurane is lower than that of sevoflurane, which gives desflurane a slightly faster onset and offset. Despite its tendency for quick equilibration, desflurane's pungent odor and irritating, airway irritating properties makes it a less preferred choice for inhalational induction. On the other hand, sevoflurane is non-irritating but has the trade-off that it is slightly slower onset in comparison to desflurane. To drop a clinical pearl, Although the solubility of sevoflurane in blood is higher than desflurane, the issue of solubility can be counteracted by increasing the inspired concentration of sevoflurane for a rapid inhalation induction. Awesome. Next, let's talk about the minimum alveolar concentration, or MAC for short. MAC is the dose of the volatile agent required to suppress movement in about 50% of patients during surgery. In other words, MAC can be understood as the relative potency of an inhaled anesthetic. Now the key word here is relative. MAC can be influenced by several factors such as drugs, age, body temperature, and electrolyte disturbances to name a few. The MAC and anesthetic requirements are proportional. For example, if the MAC increases, then the concentration of the volatile agent must increase as well. As a general rule, multiplying the MAC by 1.2 or 1.3 will be sufficient in preventing movement in 95% of patients undergoing surgery, provided that no other MAC altering factors are present. That's a really handy tip to have in your back pocket. The MAC of sevoflurane is about three times lower than the MAC of desflurane. Therefore, we can say that sevoflurane is more potent than desflurane since less of the agent is required to achieve our desired effect of maintaining anesthesia. In our patient who is 80 years old, one can expect that his MAC will be decreased. Also, it's important to keep in mind that MAC is discussed in the context of using exclusively that particular inhalational anesthetic. If paired with other agents commonly used during surgical anesthesia, such as opioids, then we may actually be able to prevent a patient from moving at an even lower MAC. Now that we've covered the concept of MAC, let's dive a little bit deeper into the physical properties of the gases themselves. Oh, come on, physics? That was my worst subject by far. Oh, don't worry, James. Believe in the me who believes in you. <laughs> Lipid solubility, also known as the oil to gas partition coefficient, is a key concept that partially explains why sevoflurane is more potent than desflurane. For the volatile agent to exert its effects, the gas molecules traveling in the blood must cross over the blood-brain barrier and enter the brain tissue, and lipophilic molecules are able to trespass much easier. Thus, lipid solubility is correlated to potency in that agents with a higher lipid solubility will be more potent since they're able to reach the brain easier. Tying this back to our previous concept of MAC, an agent with high lipid solubility will have an even lower MAC. I see. It now makes sense why the oil-to-gas partition coefficient of sevoflurane is around three times higher than desflurane, which makes sevoflurane the more potent of the two. The lipid solubility of volatile agents is also another consideration for the emergent stage of general anesthesia. 
The body fat of patients can act as a storage site for agents that are more lipid soluble, meaning that it will take a longer time for the patient to fully clear out the volatile agent from their system even after the administration has stopped. If rapid emergence of the patient is required, then desflurane may be more desirable over sevoflurane since there would be less of the anesthetic dissolved in the patient's fatty tissues. That's a great tip. Let's take a look back at our case again now with the concepts we've covered. In our 80-year-old patient who has already been induced, he has a past medical history of asthma, but is no longer on puffers. Based on this, one may choose sevoflurane over desflurane for maintenance because it offers the advantages of one, being non-irritating to the airways, and two, being better for the environment compared to desflurane. As for the dosage, an anesthesiologist may give a lower dose than what they may give to a younger, healthier individual since this patient is elderly, which essentially decreases the MAC. The prompt also does not call for situations where the patient's emergence would need to be hastened, so sevoflurane should be sufficient. Also, a skilled anesthesiologist can stop giving the sevoflurane in advance to give enough time for the patient to clear the sevoflurane from their system. Doing so can facilitate an early and timely awakening of the patient. And that brings us to the end. We hope that you'll be able to apply what you've learned today and to consider the different factors at play when choosing and dosing a volatile gas for maintaining anesthesia. As always, we would like to thank our resident content editor, Dr. Alexa Cadwell at UBC Anesthesia. This podcast would also not be possible without the generous support of Dr. Daniel Cordovani. Make sure to check us out on our website for the show notes, tweet at us at our Twitter page at Airwave Podcast, and follow us on Instagram at Airwave Podcast for any questions or suggestions. And until next time, keep working hard, stay healthy and safe, and take some nice deep breaths and count back from 10. <laughs>